This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome in to Ots and Audibles. I'm Matt Prame. Eric Scopel is with me. Uh, Eric, good show today. We got a lot to get to in terms of getting the Oregon Duck football fan, and I guess probably the Washington Husky fan as well, uh, ready for this rivalry football game that's going to be played on Saturday. And so to do that, we typically on Thursdays try to bring on a guest. And this week we're going to bring on Chris Fetters from dogman.com. He's a beat writer for the Huskies and he works for us for 24 seven sports. So a uh, good contact there in terms of diving into the Husky program. I know Chris has really followed this Husky program for a really long time. Uh, I, I, I don't want to date him, but I think he's probably uh, covered the Huskies for probably close to 20 years. So I think we're going to get a good perspective on this weekend's football game. And quite honestly, it's, it's a game that's starting to turn back into a rivalry because obviously the Ducks went through that, that 12 game winning streak. And then the Huskies won two in a row, including that win over Oregon. Uh, what was it? 70 to 21 that the most score, you know, scored points in rivalry series history and whatnot. But then uh, the Ducks were able to flip the table last year and, Win that football game in over th- overtime, thirty to twenty-four, CJ Verdell. So I, I I feel like there's a lot of excitement because both teams are good, both teams are trending up, uh, and this figures to be a rivalry game in which, you know, for a long time they're going to be pretty competitive. And that's been the exciting part, and that, that was kind of what made this year's media day down in Los Angeles. So exciting in part was that Oregon and Washington were right at the top and it was very, very close. Oregon just edging out the Huskies for tops in the Pac-12 North. And even though Washington slipped up a couple times this year, obviously Oregon also with one loss to Auburn, I don't think that really takes away the significance of this game. This still remains the biggest game on the Pac-12 schedule from where I'm sitting. Um, certainly from a uh, winning the division and, and playing for a conference championship perspective, if Oregon wins this game, they're in very, very good shape to do that. You know, they'd have to really kind of implode down the stretch if they start out 4-0 and and the way the rest of the conference has played out. They'd be in a really good position to win the Pac-12. So this is a huge, huge game. And again, it's fun having, for such a long time, this rivalry was very lopsided. Either Washington was really good or Oregon was obviously really, really good for over a decade of dominance there. And the other team really was kind of playing second fiddle. The games weren't always that competitive. But right now we're starting to see a phase, like you said, Matt, where I think these these rivalry games are going to continue to be very competitive in the winter more years than not of this game has a very good chance of, of probably winning the Pac-12 North. And I think that's the case this year. I, I don't necessarily know if Oregon loses this game if I then turn and say I think Washington's going to win the conference. Right. I guess part of that would have to depend on how the game played out. But I do think that if Oregon wins this game, like I said a second ago, it, it puts them in, the, in, a, in a fantastic spot to win this conference and certainly uh, gain some momentum you know, on the road, we, we, we talked about it earlier this week. Oregon just has struggled recently in road games, and this is a true road environment. 
that is going to be very, very difficult to play in. And it's going to be, I think, Oregon's biggest test without question uh, so far this season. And frankly, you know, they, I know they have road games at USC and Arizona State left, but I don't think any of those kind of really match what no. this game should be. Yeah, you're, you're right there. And that this, this is going to be the most hostile uh, environment Oregon will be playing in all year. I mean, that's, I, I don't foresee anything coming up that's going to rival kind of what we'll see out of Saturday's game at, at, at Washington. I mean, this fan base is going to be jacked up. This, this Husky team is going to be jacked up to, to take down Oregon. Because, look, the reality is this, is that Oregon right now holds all the cards. They're coming into this conference game where if they, if, if they win, uh, status quo becomes even, even more cemented into the likelihood that Oregon will win the Pac-12 North. The, the Huskies are going to need to knock off Oregon and, in retrospect, kind of ruin their, their season and then at the same time still get a little bit of help. Uh, they still need Oregon to lose another football game for them to come in and and win out and win the division. And certainly that could happen. I mean, Oregon's got row games at USC. They have to play Washington State next week, in which Oregon hasn't won against the Cougars in four years. Uh, you've also got a, a game at Arizona State, like you said. So you know there are mines still on the table for Oregon's season to you know to pick up two losses. Uh, one of which could come this weekend at, at Washington. So you have to take that into consideration. But the reality is, is you know, the Huskies are, are going to need some help uh, if they're going to get back into the, the division race and win the division. And that means knocking off Oregon and knocking off, uh, ruining their season. And so for Oregon's sake, it's going in. And like, you, look, you could kind of deliver the final blow, if you will, to the Huskies chances at winning the division because if one, once you win three, uh, once, excuse me, once you lose three games in division or in conference, you're, it, it becomes almost impossible for you to win, uh, the conference championship or division championship, what have you. And so that's what Oregon, you know, obviously there's the rivalry factor. There's, you know, Oregon's playing still to, to win, uh, their games and somehow see if they can get back into the college football playoff and, you know, win the division, but this game carries also the rivalry aspect and you could basically end their season of, of championship aspirations by winning this weekend. And we should also mention that Washington probably has a little bit more of a tougher road after this. They play sure. Utah at home. They have a bye week after this weekend's game, but they play Utah at home on November 2nd. That's probably going to be, if not Washington's most difficult game, which I think is this weekend, certainly the second most difficult game. Um, Utah has a look at the best team in the Pac-12 South, which is kind of what we had predicted coming into the season. So um, it, it doesn't get easier for Washington in the short term. And then, and then they do have an easier back-end schedule. They go, it's similar to Oregon in terms of the, the back-end's a little easier at Oregon State, at Colorado, and then home against Washington State. So if Washington can beat Oregon and they beat Utah, they do set themselves up to have a, a shot at it because Oregon would have to play some decent teams there if, if Washington can, can get through these final five games unscathed. With that said, I, I really think between Oregon and Utah. I think Washington's going to drop one of those games. I think it's going to be this Saturday. We'll talk more about that on our podcast later this week, predicting the game. But um, it's certainly a game with a ton on the line. And I think if you're an Oregon fan, if you're a fan of the Pac-12, you have to be really excited about a 1230 national kickoff between the two best programs in the Pac-12 North, two of you know, the more storied programs, at least in the last 25 years or so, uh, an opportunity to play with, with a lot on the line, with a lot of talented players. I and mean, hopefully... 
show the conference well. Hopefully this is a game where the conference comes out looking well because, right. again, if you just look at the way the season's gone, it hasn't been the best year in terms of raising the pro- or I guess the conference's national perception. It hasn't gone to plan from that regard, certainly. Real quick before we bring Chris on, I'm going to throw you a question. This game has been played 25 times in Portland. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, I'm sure it's probably because of stadium accessibility or what have you, but in starting in 1930 and ending uh, in what looks like 1965, when over Oregon and Washington played each other in the state of Oregon, the game was played in Portland. And let's just hypothetically here, let's just say MLB comes to Portland and the, the, the city of Portland gets a professional baseball team. Would you be in favor of this game maybe moving permanently to a neutral setting, which would be in Portland because it's two hours north of, of Eugene, two hours south of Portland, and kind of creating kind of like a Red River shootout type mentality that we've seen with Oklahoma and Texas? Oof. Uh, my gut says I, I really like the way it is now in terms of having – such strong, you know, home fan advantages. Right. I think that's great for the sport. I will say, maybe doing that every other, maybe you do home, home, neutral, home, home, neutral, something like that, where you rotate it and you do provide some sort of neutral thing. I think it would be really cool to have a game, like you said, in Portland. Portland being really kind of a neutral location, um, even though it is in the state of Oregon. Obviously, there is a lot of dog dog fans in the Portland area. There are a ton. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not totally opposed to that. I, I just think I would be really hesitant to completely eliminate the the home advantage that you get at Otson and that you get certainly at Husky Stadium. I think those are the things that make college football so great. And, and I would not be, I guess, opposed to the idea of doing some sort of neutral thing. I just don't know if I would want to do it with at the expense of these of these great home field advantages, which really, I think, in terms of the Pac-12, uh, are two of, if not the best, certainly in the top three or four uh, home atmospheres in the conference. Really, really fun to go watch our football play on a Saturday in Eugene or in Seattle. So I would hate to remove that aspect of it from the rivalry, but I do think it would be cool to, I, I don't know when you do it, but rotate it in there where every, every odd year or maybe every three years you have it played in Portland. I think that's kind of an interesting wrinkle. Yeah, I, I certainly, I think I probably would side with keeping them on both sides, but I think it would be kind of cool at least every once in a while to see something like that play out. Um, it also probably would depend upon how many tickets each school could get to sell because that's a huge driving factor for both schools is right. you would basically eliminate the marquee game for either team every year uh, for a home conference game. Because, look, Oregon gets Oregon State and Washington gets Washington State. But I think it's safe to say that you know when these two teams play this year, it's at Washington. This is probably the hottest ticket uh, for if you're going to go to one football game in C- at Washington at, and you live in the Seattle area, it's probably going to be the Oregon game was what you would choose. And if it was vice versa and a Duck fan living in the state of Oregon gets to go to one football game all year and he could he could choose uh, Oregon versus Washington, he's probably going to pick that one. So that would be that would be my biggest you know issue is is how many tickets could you could you get between both schools? Um, probably, I guarantee you right now that you know MLB would not. The uh, Portland, you know, MLB to Portland would not build a a, a hundred thousand seat stadium for baseball, and each team could get fifty thousand seats. So uh, it would be a substantial drop off in, in tickets available for both fan bases, and that's probably what ultimately would would prevent it from happening. All right, let's bring him in now, Chris Fetters from Dogman.com. Uh, Chris, how's it going, man? Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, I'm good, Matt. How are you guys? 
Doing all right. Uh, counting down the days until this game uh, finally is played. And just before we brought you on, we were discussing a hypothetical. We were going back into the history books of this series. And uh, I'm assuming it's because of the st- stadium requirements for Oregon and whatnot. But 25 times during this series when it was played in the state of Oregon, it was actually played in Portland. And in the state of Oregon right now, where there's a hot topic of is the city of Portland going to get an MLB baseball team? And that kind of thought of maybe think of this series being played in Portland and just the hypothetical of would you be in favor of it maybe every once in a while, you know, instead of each team traveling to the other team's home field, meeting in the middle and playing like a Red River shootout style game uh, in Portland? Uh, I'd be I'd be all for that. I, to be honest with you, you might want to consult with some Washington State fans and see how some of the like the Apple Cup type stuff was when it was played in Spokane at Joe Albee. Um I'd be curious to see what they thought of that because, you know, Washington, obviously they think pretty highly of their home field advantage with Husky stadium. And I guarantee Oregon fans feel the exact same way about Autzen. So do I think the administrations would agree to something like that? I don't know, but if Texas and Oklahoma could come to an agreement, I don't see why (laughs) Washington and Oregon couldn't. Yeah. It's just kind of one of those cool little nuggets of this series of, you know, games being played in Portland and, if MLB ever does come, you know, there'll probably be a state-of-the-art facility in late October, November. It's probably not being used very op- very often, I would imagine. Uh, maybe this game could, could be played in a, kind of like a bowl game type setting where both fan bases are there. So uh, just something to, I think, reminisce or you know, dream about for a second. But well, great, but, we can we can we can have two teams in the Northwest that have ne- that'll never make a World Series. Fantastic. <laughs> oh, that's that's too good. Yeah, I'm a Mariners fan, so yeah, I'm with you on that one. Just t- completely sucks to be the only team in MLB baseball history that not make the World Series right now. Yeah, brutal. Let's brutal. let's look to this weekend's game. Uh, anytime a program goes through an offseason where a new QB is kind of broken in, that's going to be the kind of the main storyline uh, for anyone. And then when it's replacing a four-year starter uh, like Eason has had to do with, with Browning graduating, just what, what do you feel like has been the, the biggest difference between these two guys? I mean, obviously Eason's got the howitzer on his arm. That's just, you know, rocket arm and, and whatnot. And he's much bigger stature wise than, than Browning was, but do you see much of a difference in terms of just play calling the way these two, these two guys play, execute things? What's the difference you think in, in the, the two quarterbacks? Yeah, it's a good question. Cause you know, really when you look at it on its face, it doesn't feel like the offense has changed all that much. It almost feels like, you know, they're so true to their idea of we have our core philosophies and we're not going to deviate from the core part of it. We're going to try to adapt to the personnel that we have, but that we're not going to fundamentally change who we are just because we have a quarterback now who's 6'6", 230 pounds, can throw the ball through a telephone book, you know, as opposed to a guy who was, you know, 6'1", 6'2", 200 pounds, and was the exact opposite in terms of arm arm talent. Um, the one thing that Jacob Jake Browning was is that he was literally like another coach on the field, though, which... You know, Jacob Sermon or Jacob Easton's not there yet. Um, he could very well get there at this point, but this is still his first year back after basically being out of, of college football for a couple of years. So, um, you know, I think I think Washington fans in general have been really, really pleased with what they've seen. The 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 explosives, the the 
highlight play, uh, highlight reel plays, like the the throws down the field and all that stuff where it looks like he's just flicking it out of his wrist. Um, yeah, those are those are fun for the fans. I mean, they love that kind of stuff. There's no doubt about it. But then again, you know, if you really start to look at some of the some of the games where he's had to struggle a little bit against like California, um, even even in the win against USC, he only threw for 180 yards. Uh, at Stanford, you know, he really struggled with 16 to 36. Um, just, you know, and, and again, it's all connected, right? I mean, the offensive line gave him no time to, to, to sit in the pocket and scan the field and look around. So uh, it all kind of goes hand in hand. But I would say overall, uh, Washington fans are, are really pleased with where Jacob Eason's at. And they know he's capable of making a really, really big play. And his arm can bail him out. That's the one thing that you just couldn't say about Jake Browning. From an injury perspective, Chris, I'm curious. Oregon is probably as healthy as they've been all season, with the exception of five players who are out for the season. Obviously, Jacob Breland's news this week. That's that's tough for Oregon, probably one of their best offensive players. Where's Washington at entering this game? I know there's some key players that, that maybe are up in the air to, to play on Saturday. Do we have any clarity on that? Yeah, there. You know, according to Chris Peterson, and I, I know Oregon fans are going to know this all because of the Chip Kelly's injury policy. Everyone was week to week, day to day month to month, year to year, whatever. That's Chris Peterson. Chris Peterson's basically everyone's week to week, unless it's season ending. And he will tell people if it's season ending. He did kind of slip a little bit Monday. And we were asking him about Ty Jones, the 6'4 junior receiver out of Utah who hasn't played at all this year. And he had a hand injury in spring. And he said that he's been full go for a couple weeks, but they're kind of on that edge right now of whether or not they're thinking about redshirting him, which – you know, with the new four-game rule, it doesn't really matter. He could still play on Saturday and, yep. and still entertain an idea of redshirting eventually. So I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen there. Obviously, the most uh, visual one or the one that 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 hit Washington fans the most was the one last Saturday night with linebacker MJ Tafisi, the redshirt freshman out of Utah, who got carted off with um, what Peterson called a significant stinger. And I just really doubt that he'll be available this weekend. I, I would assume he's going to be in some sort of protocol. And even though uh, Peterson said there was no concussion, it wasn't really to the head. It was more to the shoulder and neck area than anything. Uh, I'm sure they're going to be really cautious about that. And, you know, and they've got another week after, um, you know, this game to, to rest up because they're going to have a bye week after the Oregon game. So they might as well just check it out, make sure that everything's okay. I know that I asked Peterson specifically about that, if they were going to use the idea of the bye week to just really get him fully, fully healthy. And they'd, and he said, we'd, we'd do that regardless. So um, other than that, the only other major ones that are really kind of up in the air at this point, uh, tailback Richard Newton, who has really come on, Richard Freshman, California. He's been their bigger back option. He's a guy that they've run – the Wildcat with a lot, and he wasn't available against Arizona, for instance, and so they didn't even run the Wildcat at all last weekend. So it's interesting to see if he's going to be available. We don't really know what his uh, situation is. They did get Jacob Kaiser back, the junior tight end from Oregon. Um, you know, so they he did work in a little bit against Arizona. I suspect he'll try to work in even more uh, against Oregon this weekend. Other than that, I'm trying to rack my brain to see if there's any other guys. They did. Nick Harris did not play. The start, the senior center did not play at Arizona. He, I would assume he's probably going to be available for Oregon. We don't have confirmation on that. Won't really know. 
We talked with Peterson uh, later this week, so we'll hopefully we'll find out more on Nick Harris. We didn't get the sense that it was a, a long-term thing for him, so we'll see on that. Mateo Mele is the is the redshirt freshman from Arizona that filled in for him and really kind of filled in pretty flawlessly. It didn't seem like there was much of a drop-off at the center position at all. And then at right guard, Jackson Kirkland started, um, the kid from Oregon, uh, Dean right. Kirkland's son, the, the UW legacy. He started the game, and, and he's been a stalwart at right guard ever since last year's uh, game against Auburn. And he got banged up, I think, in the third series, got stepped on something in his foot and was kind of unsure. They, they He kept his helmet on. He was there on the sidelines the whole game at Arizona. They just never used him. They brought in Henry uh, Benavalu, who did a nice job in his absence. So not really exactly sure if Jackson Kirkland is going to be fully available for Oregon, but we'll find out again when we talk to Peterson. Defensively, it looks like they're in pretty good shape for the most part outside of Tafisi. Um, yeah, it looks like right now, I think they're pretty good on that front. I think the defense is pretty healthy because Tafisi is technically one of the backup inside linebackers. So the starting guys, Kyler Manu, Brandon Wellington, and then Jackson Sermon's in there too. Those guys should be available. At running back, you mentioned Newton, but Miles Gaskin, they had to replace him as well. Obviously one of the best backs in Pac-12 history. Um, how have they been able to kind of spread that production that they lost from him seems like they've got maybe three guys we'll obviously do it maybe we'll call them day to day uh for for this game against the against Oregon um what's just kind of been your your assessment of the running backs as they replace just another position where they lost a four-year starter well golfers will understand the term ham and egg where you're just kind of you're, you're figuring it how you're figuring out a way to make things work even you get it you maybe maybe rob a little bit here rob a little bit there to make it happen and that's kind of what they've been able to do especially when newton was available because newton again would be your your wildcat back or maybe your third down short yardage uh, goal line red zone type guy And, and that's not to say that's all he did but that would be something where if they were in one of those situations they would turn to him more often than not and then they had Savon Ahmed, who was kind of the starting guy coming into the season, who's been used more of your kind of your home run threat. He had an 80, 89-yard run against USC that was pretty spectacular. And then they've they've supple- supplemented those guys with Sean McGrew, the junior from um, St. John Bosco in Southern California. And he's been, I wouldn't say he's been necessarily a, a revelation, but he's been certainly a guy that... Oregon fans will probably remember a little bit from the game last year at Austin. He had some nice moments in that game, and he's really kind of built on those moments and and has had and has put together a really solid season so far. I mean, he had like 110 yards, I think, at BYU, 106 last week at Arizona. Uh, he's had, I think, he had 65 or so yards against Hawaii. But again, it's been really, it's been really stop start. I mean, he had 18 carries against uh, BYU, and then the next week against USC, he only had two. Right. So it's just been Keith Bonifaz, the, the Washington running backs coach, has been really kind of playing hot hands and just trying to you know put guys in to start, see how they adapt to the game, how quickly they adjust to the speed and everything else. Maybe they hit one early, or they you can tell they've got an early field that's good, and then he'll run with that guy for a little bit, so to speak. And that's how they kind of put it all together. I mean, Savon Ackman and Sean McGrew are going to be the guys right now. Like I said, Newton's, you know, week to week at this point. They still have um, Kamari Pleasant 
available, the junior from uh, Etiwanda, and he has not had a carry in the last four games. So I don't know what the situation is going to be with Kamari. And then they have, they have a true freshman in Cameron Davis from Upland, California, who is certainly available if, if Newton's situation becomes such that we find out he's, he's uh, more worse than we thought in terms of maybe he's going to be gone for a number of games. They could maybe take the red shirt off of, of Cameron Davis or maybe just play him for the four games. So, but that to, to kind of answer your question in the beginning, they've, they've kind of done it piecemeal. They, they, a guy like Miles Gaskin, you can't replace uh, with just one more guy. I mean, those are those guys are so hard to replace, even in um, even by doing it uh, by a group. But somehow they've been able to kind of put it together, and it's worked. Looking at the last two years, Washington was really good at converting third downs into first downs. You know, top 20 nationally in that department. This year, they're in the 80s nationally. They're 11th in the Pac-12 and converting third downs and just 37%. Just Is that just new quarterback that was a four-year starter, the loss of a four-year starter at running back? What What's to, to explain that huge of a drop-off? I mean, they've always been very sound offensively, and that's that's a pretty big dip. Oh, it is. It's huge. And some of it is red zone issues. If they've had third, third downs in the red zones, they've struggled. You know, some of it is just standard stuff like, you know, ill-time penalties, like false starts or other things like that. And then to be honest with you, I think it's also a reflection of, of how maybe they have not allowed themselves to sit, you know, to, to kind of situate themselves and put themselves in good third and short situations by not doing well on first and second down. Um, the thing with Jacob Beeson is he he has the ability to hit the home run play, but he you know he still has to be accurate. He still has to they still have to do well on first and second down to give themselves a reasonable chance of converting on a third down. And I I did a a, a bit of a deep dive on it a few weeks back, and I can't remember exactly what what some of the some of the major problems were in the particular game that I was looking at, but it definitely was of note that they weren't giving themselves third and threes, third and fours. They were more like third and sixes, third and sevens, third and eights. And those are very tough to convert consistently. You may convert again, like they're, they're doing it maybe a third of the time or a little bit better than a third of the time, but that's nowhere near good enough. And especially against an Oregon defense, that's all of a sudden just playing out of their brains. So um, yeah, I think when you really try to, to look at it, there's going to be five or six different answers that you can do that kind of all add up to why they're not doing well on third downs. But again, it's red zone. I think it's being more consistent on first and second down. And then also the fact that um, they're not giving themselves good third and short yardages to help convert. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back with some more in-depth stuff with uh, Chris Fetters of dogman.com as we get you ready for this weekend's Oregon at Washington football game. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. All right, welcome back to the Austin Audible's podcast. Matt Prem, Eric Scopel. We're joined by our guest this week, Chris Fetters from Dogman.com. We're previewing this weekend's game between Oregon uh, and the Washington Huskies rivalry week. Uh, Chris, I think it was pretty reasonable to expect this Washington team to maybe see just a slight drop-off early in the season because of all the starters lost on defense. So many guys on both sides of the football have had to go on to the NFL either because of graduation or they left early. And it's just simply hard to replace that. And is the Arizona game, they look different from how they've looked the rest of the year up until that point. Do you feel like that Arizona game was kind of the point where the youth and the inexperience of guys making their first couple starts in their careers or having you know prominent roles now on either side of the football kind of turning into now guys that have seen things and gone through the routines a little bit and now we're going to start seeing – explosive growth from both sides of the football and you know Washington can continuing to look better and better each and every week you feel like that was a turning point game for this team or is maybe that this week well I think it could have been a turning point game in a number of ways Matt I I do think one thing is true if you go back and look at the record with Chris Peterson since he got to Washington in 2014 they have not lost back-to-back games in season since 2015 so they, they've done a really good job of, let's say they laid an egg in week one. Well, week two, they've come back and they've rectified it. They figured out a way to come back and find a win. So that was part of it. I think just the pride factor and and the, the just the resiliency of this team kind of lent itself to the idea that there was going to be a response, especially after the way they played against Stanford. Because that the, the game at Stanford was... Uh, it was abysmal. I don't even know any other way to put it. It was right. abysmal on all sides of the ball. The offense didn't credit themselves. The defense didn't credit themselves. I mean, when you listen to the post game and the first thing they're talking about is how the player of the game is probably the punter, you know it's awful. I mean, it's just ridiculously. It was, it, And it really came out of nowhere. There was no reason for it to happen other than the fact that maybe you just chalk it up and flush it down the toilet and say, you know what, uh, David Shaw and the Stanford – coaches and the Stanford players just wanted it more and they came prepared. They had a better game plan. They executed and Washington didn't show up in any way, shape or form. So I think the, the response at Arizona in some ways was to be expected. I don't know if it was going to work in quite the way that it did, because if you look at the way that game went early on, Washington had every opportunity to blow Arizona right out of the water. It could have been over right. by halftime. I mean, there was a muff punt. There was, um, you know, they had that, that uh, I don't know what Khalil Tate was thinking when he tried to throw the <laughs> he ball. He just threw the ball away. And, yeah, and, 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 and Brandon Wellington picks it up and says, thank you very much. That's six. Um, you know, they had a block punt by Levi Anzarike early in the game. They could have been, I mean, it could have been 21-0, and the offense maybe didn't even have hardly anything that they would have needed to do. Um, but they, but again, red zone issues, you turn two touchdowns into field goals. Now all of a sudden it's six, nothing, you know, Arizona scores, uh, a field goal 
And then all of a sudden, you know, Tate gives Washington the touchdown, just gives it to him. But by halftime, Arizona was ahead 13 or 17-13. I mean, I don't even I, – I mean, so the response came in the second half when they outscored him 38-10. I think it was one of those. And, and the rumor is – and take it for what it's worth. But the rumor is Jacob Eason kind of – and he's a mild-mannered guy for the most part. He doesn't really – he lets his play do the talking, doesn't really talk all that much. It sounds like he kind of let loose a little bit, especially on the coaches, and just said, come on, man, just let us play. And you can almost kind of see that on the field in the very first play of the second half. He kind of he kind of put up a ball on a one-on-one down the sideline with Puka Nakua, the true freshman receiver from Utah, and he right. came down with it. And it was almost like the whole demeanor of the thing changed in that one play, it felt like. And from then on out, they were able to score – Get the ball back, score again. They got a they got a fumble on defense, turn that into a score, and now all of a sudden you're talking about a game that's an absolute rout um, in in the space of of minutes. So it, it, they needed that for sure. Um, but you know the defense itself, it's so weird because you know you talk to Jimmy Lake, the defensive coordinator, and you ask him because I you know I I charted like the the safety. Uh, stuff that was going on with Miles Bryant, the senior safety, and and how uh, Kevin Sumlin, the Arizona head coach, said basically Washington threw a bunch of safety pressures and blitzes at him that they hadn't put on tape all year. And I was asking, you know, Jimmy Lake about, you know, did they really have to go super exotic to to try to get things going, to try to create some some pressures and create some things to get Tate off his spot? And he was like, no, nothing's changed for us. He goes, we'll put our wrinkles in, but we're no different what we did last week, kind of, a, you know, the, the assumption was we're no different last week than they were against Stanford, which is like incredible. I mean, I don't even know how you can say that, but he did. And so again, the defense just kind of goes about its way. They, they work hard. They practice hard. You talk to guys like Anzarike and, and Miles Bryant this week, and they're trying to treat it just like any other game, even though they know it's not. And uh, that's why the Washington the coaches kind of shut it down as far as uh, as far as player availability. We only got Anzarike and and Miles Bryant. Those were the only players that were available this week. And then on offense, it was uh, Trey Adams and someone else. I can't remember who it was, but it's just uh, you know they'll treat it like this. They'll say it doesn't mean anything. This isn't a big game. They have to treat it just like it's any other game on the schedule. But everyone knows it's not. Well, it's it's been that way here too. I mean, we got three players defensively today. Uh, I think 10 total players were requested and three of them spoke. Uh, and I don't think, I think one of them was a starter. Uh, offensively, we we didn't get Justin Herbert. We, you know, the, the numbers there were also significantly smaller than normal. And then when they, when guys did talk uh, this week about this game, it was basically uh, the, the standard operation answer of, we're excited for the opportunity to go up and, and play in a, in a great environment against a good team. I mean, that's basically uh, all we got. I was going to say, too, real quick, Matt, to go back to your point about maybe some of these younger players now kind of becoming veterans in front of our eyes. I think there is certainly is a, a, a good point to be made about that because Washington is certainly really, really young. They only had two returning starters in Bryant and Benny Potoi. But, you know, they're playing three true freshmen in the defensive backfield in Asa Turner, Cameron Williams, uh, Trent McDuffie. And then you've got Leatu Latu playing outside linebacker. So you've got four true freshmen there. And then uh, Puka Nakua is the lone true freshman on the on the offensive side of the ball that's doing anything. And then you've got the kickoff guy, 
Tim Horn from uh, Punahou in Hawaii. Those are the six guys that are uh, that have already burned their red shirts, and that's pretty big considering Washington was able to redshirt every single one of their players last year. Um, so it's so it's a bit of a sea change from uh, them trying to figure out what to do with the four game rule. But now when you've got guys like McDuffie and Asa Turner and Cameron Williams kind of now they've played a half a dozen games, they, they're veterans. I mean, Jimmy Lake will tell you flat out, those guys aren't rookies anymore. They're not true freshmen. They are guys that have experience under their belt. Their belts. They played against the guys like USC. They played at Stanford. They played on the road a few times. They know exactly what they're getting themselves into. But that being said, I don't think they've quite experienced what I think they're going to experience on Saturday. Chris, I wonder, you, you, you spoke a little bit about the offensive, I guess, uh, revolution, if you will, uh, in Tucson against Arizona, where they came out and scored 51 points. What has been the issue in certain games? I just kind of look at the scores this year. They scored 47 against Eastern Washington, 52 against Hawaii, 45 against BYU, and then 51 against Arizona. But then you have games against Cal and Stanford where you score 19 and 13 points. And I know the defenses are probably better in those games, but are there other things trends that you've noticed in those games where they struggle to score offensively? Because that's a pretty big variance from games where they're scoring in the 40s to 50s to games where they're not even getting to 21 points. Yeah, no, it's true. And it's a good question because, first of all, the, the California game, for anybody that <laughs> on the outs, any neutral that actually stayed up to watch that whole game, I applaud you because I don't know Ooh, why you me. would. That's incredible. I mean, because the game wasn't over till 1.30. I mean, I didn't get home from working in that, that game till 5 in the morning. Um, I just chalked that one up as just a really random, random, random game, just fully, fully random and give credit to Cal. I mean, their defense is good. I don't, I don't care what anyone says. And and I know their offense is going to struggle now because they don't have, uh, Garbers anymore and that kind of thing. Their defense is legit. I mean, Evan Weaver, I saw Evan Weaver play when he was a 10th grader, when he was playing for Gonzaga prep, know all about Evan Weaver. And to be honest, Washington really wanted Evan Weaver badly. He just wanted a new experience at Cal and, you know, both his parents went to Washington, all that, you know, trying to envision this defense with Evan Weaver in it is is a whole different beast compared to what they have now. And that's something I know Washington fans think about. It's a pipe dream. It's, it's something, I guess, you know, whatever, but I, you know, you just, you look back at the, at the, the trends and that stuff. Like I said, I think you throw the Cal game out the window but the Stanford game is the one that's the real sore thumb and the the one that sticks out in a ridiculous way. And they they couldn't stay on the field. They completely abandoned the run once they got down. And that's what and that's what Stanford will do to you if they get ahead at all. They'll just absolutely strangulate the clock. They will they will just take that thing out of the game. They will take the air out of the ball. And you know, I mean, Oregon. You guys saw it down there. I mean, what was the score? Twenty one to six, something yeah. like that. Yep. It's just they they will try to keep this thing into uh, as as reasonable a game. They will not let you get blown. You know, they will not blow out anybody, but they won't get blown out. They will just try to keep it as reasonable as possible. But they if they get ahead and if they have any sort of ball control at all, it's game over because Washington's defense couldn't stop them. They were in a situation where Cameron Scarlett was running like a man possessed. There were a few times at the end of the game where they needed stops on like third and three, third and four, and he would literally just get out of arm tackles or he would just simply out leverage a guy to get a first down. And it, and I guarantee you in that locker room, Washington locker room after the game, there was probably some pretty disgusted defensive players there that were 
wondering where was the effort, where was the energy, uh, where was the want, where was the heart in that kind of stuff? Because it didn't look like it was there at all. So, yeah. So can they really um, kind of lay an egg if possible? Sure. I mean, it's it's not like they're on a knife edge. It's not like they can go either way. I think this offense is pretty good. And I think their their offensive line kind of really tells the tale. If they're all in sync and they're all playing together, I think they can do some do some things. But if if the other team, especially along the defensive line, can get after Jacob Eason a little bit, not even not even a ton, but just enough to give him give him some happy feet, get him off his spot just a little bit, he'll stay in the pocket a couple times. But more often than not, he'll start to trend a little backwards. And if he starts to go backwards a little bit, it's it's over. Plays over. I mean, he's going to get sacked. He's going to throw the ball away. It's not going to be a positive result for Washington if he starts going backwards. You kind of just answered maybe our final question for you. And we're speaking with Chris Fetters of Dogman.com. Um, what does Washington? I guess what are like the key things that they need to do on Saturday if they want to win this football game? And then I guess on the on the flip side. What are those things that they can't allow Oregon to to accomplish in this game if if they if they want to win? Yeah, I think it honestly starts at the line of scrimmage. Again, you talk talk about two top twenty five teams. All the standard cliche things yeah. apply, right? It's field yeah. position, it's turnovers, it's sudden change plays, it's all the things that we all talk about every week. But that being said, it's gonna it's gonna be in the trenches. And I think the key line the key matchup is going to be Washington's offensive line against Oregon's defensive line. Oregon is getting catalyzed from that defensive line, whether it's Jordan Scott, whether it's Thibodeau, whether it's they're, 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 they've got a lot of talent. And, and Washington may feel like they've got to double some guys and things like that, but if they throw some stunts at them, I mean, Stanford gave every team going against Washington the blueprint. They, I mean, they flat out did. You watch Casey Tuhill from Stanford in that he's running stunts against the Huskies, and, he's, and they're getting spread out. And he just comes underneath, and it's just unabated. Yeah, he did and that they, against it, Oregon as well. Yeah, they did that time and time and time again. If Oregon wants to run similar games, and they get the tackle and guard spread out a little bit, and and the the offensive line guys do not do a good job of switching or or you know figuring out what their space is and how they got to deal with it, it could it could be it could get ugly quick because Eason is. You know, he's like I said, he's got uncommon arm talent, but that talent's that doesn't mean anything, anything if he's on the ground. It's just and I think that there's an opportunity unless Washington really simply goes to quick passes, which is possible. I mean, they have a quick passing game. They can do that. But unless that's all they do and they don't look downfield and they don't try to take shots, uh, it could be a long day. It could be a long day just because. Oregon's defense is is really riding a, a wave of momentum that I've seen, and they're playing at a level that Washington fans will understand because when you look back at 2016, 2017, when some of the, the best Washington defenses were playing, they had that swagger about them. They had yep. that kind of confidence that they were going to be able to shut these guys down. And and I know right now Oregon's on a, a kind of a, a – it's basically, isn't it kind of a, a it's historic run right now? Yeah. Of, of, in terms of points allowed. So yeah, they've got their work cut out for them. I'd say on the other side for Washington, the defense in terms of trying to contain a guy like Justin Herbert, I think that's what you have to do. You other, you know, it's almost kind of like the opposite with wash with, with, with Oregon's defense. You want to get Easton on the run 
with Washington's defense, you want to contain Herbert and make you, you know, make Herbert beat you when he's in the pocket. And he can, but he's going to be less effective than if he has that run pass option where he can possibly get a lot of easy first downs with his legs, for instance. And so if they can, it's going to be a real test of the quarterbacks and, and who's going to have the better day. I think that's going to tell a lot in terms of who ultimately wins that game. Well, Chris, I really appreciate you coming on the show with us this week, and uh, we'll certainly find you in the press box, and uh, hopefully we get treated to a really good football game on Saturday. Something, if we get the drama that we got last year again, man, we're, we're, we'll both be in for a good treat. Well, I'll tell you, if uh, if you get the drama of last year's game, I think Washington's feeling pretty good now that Peyton Henry's 14-14 on field goals. <laughs> I, I, think they, I think Peyton Henry would probably give up every single one of those field goals. Yes if it meant that he had made the one last year, but you're right. If it, if it comes down to that kind of drama, I think it's, it's going to be, uh, it could be an all timer. It could be just be one of those, uh, one of those for the books that people will be talking about for a long time to come. Yeah, conference probably will want something similar. Just, you know, both teams look really good to, to make sure that primetime game, 1230, a lot of people are going to be watching, making sure that, you know, two of their bigger name teams in the conference play well, on, on national TV, it's probably the outcome that they would want. Agreed. I would, I would imagine. Agreed. All right, Chris. Thanks. Thanks a lot, and uh, we'll we'll see you on Saturday. All right. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Chris. All right. Good stuff there from Chris uh, Fetters of Dogman.com. Certainly knows his Washington football. Uh, really, really good stuff on just the analysis of Eason and kind of the transition yeah. there with Jake Browning and then you know, new running backs as well. And then you, you got some good stuff on, on just kind of the overall landscape of, of this offense that Oregon's going to be facing against up at Washington and, and why they've been successful in a couple games and, and why, quite honestly, they, they've looked kind of mediocre in other games. Yeah, there's been inconsistencies there. I think Chris did a good job of, of touching on kind of the bizarre nature of that Cal game and then just the fact that Washington kind of just couldn't put it together at Stanford. I think certainly if you're an Oregon fan, you're hoping Saturday's game goes more like those two games than it did uh, than the games that Washington's played in between there where they've scored, you know, in the 40s and 50s, I think five times this season. So it's a, or four times, I should say, this season. So it's a Washington offense that is sort of Jekyll and Hyde and, and, uh, I think if you're an Oregon fan, hopefully you're you're seeing them come out there on and not play their best game. Yeah, I think if if you're Oregon and if this game is played in the 40s between both teams, it's probably not a good thing for, for the no. Ducks. Um, I I think Oregon's probably going to want uh, as crazy as it sounds, you know, a game played maybe you know from their perspective in in the 30s and and see if 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 Washington doesn't score more than 17 points, I 20 maybe 20 points. I feel really good about Oregon's chances of walking out of Husky Stadium with a victory, but uh, it's going to be a tall, tall order to ask for this defense, even though they've played uh, at a phenomenal rate in the last five games. I think you know, going into this, this weekend's game at Washington, it's probably going to be their most difficult test of the entire year, even, even Auburn, I think. Yeah, I, know, I think I'd agree with you, and, and that's why this is shaping up to be such a, a pivotal game, and I think one that we're going to learn an awful lot about Oregon. I, I think, you know, you look at the way the season's played out, and I think you've learned a lot about the defense. I think you've learned some things about the offense, but I think you're going to learn more uh, on Saturday this week just against probably the best team that they've faced, uh, just in terms of kind of where this team is. And it's a critical game, certainly in the middle of your season, to sort of maybe kind of 
get a better idea of, of where you're at against sure. a team that is going to be playing, like I said, uh, you know, I think at a very high level, very motivated Washington team. All right, that's going to do it for us. Uh, I, I'm Matt Frame, Eric Scopel. Thanks again to Chris Betters of Dogman.com for coming on the show. Uh, stick with us throughout the week. We've got your pregame show on Friday that gets you ready uh, for this 12:30 kickoff. So keep your eyes out for that one as well. Uh, for Eric Scopel and myself, Matt Frame, listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Adios, amigos. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app.